Thank you, Linda. Thank you for your story, Bill. I was wondering how that was going to turn out. My wife leaned over to me and she says, how is it that somebody can have so many near-death adventures in their life? And I'm thinking, you are a treasure to us. We need to listen because we're hearing about the old days, right? And that was, that's, that was good. Man, we had a breakup in where we used to live in Maine, too. It was bad. This morning, I want to try to be uh, practical in what I'm going to say over the next few minutes. But first, a story to get us started. Although I know how to work a washing machine, Colette has always been the one who handles laundry-related tasks in our household. There's almost no stain impervious to her persistent effort to remove it, and she has a cabinet full of potions and chemicals she employs to work her magic. I call her the Laundry Fairy. Now from early on, our family followed a few rules having to do with dirty clothes. These rules were seldom spoken, but they were understood by all of us. One of those rules is, don't leave anything in your pockets that you don't want washed, and especially do not leave anything in your pockets that could leak out in the washing machine and stain the clothes. Things like pens and crayons. Our kids knew this rule, from the time they could hardly walk. Never leave stuff in your pockets when the clothes go in the hamper. Normally, the laundry fairy checks all the pockets before a garment goes in the machine, but sometimes things slip through. Car keys, flash drives, a wallet even, once, and of course, cash. Another one of the unspoken rules all cash found in the washing machine becomes property of Laundry Fairy. She once found a $100 bill of Andrew's wages from one of his neighborhood lawn mowing jobs. He hadn't even missed it. Property of the Laundry Fairy. So, one evening years ago, I was working at my desk in the office. I was probably writing a sermon, and Colette was getting the freshly cleaned clothes out of the dryer in the next room. Our house had kind of an odd design. The washer and dryer were located in the family room up the basement, uh, which was open to the office. It was basically one big open area. Uh, there were supposed to be bifold doors uh, to hide the appliances from view, but whoever it was that remodeled the house never installed them. Suddenly there was a shriek, and I looked up to see Colette holding one of her best tops, one of her favorites. It was kind of a pale lavender color, and across the front was a distinct brown smear, a streak. Crumpled bits of candy, paper, candy wrapper paper in the dryer uh, told the sordid truth. It was a chocolate stain, now indelibly dyed in the fabric, because, of course... It had just come from the dryer. Now it was beyond even the ability of the laundry fairy to remove. To say that she was unhappy is a really big understatement. She called for our three children, and she lined them up in front of the dryer. Andrew, who was probably about 11 at the time, Katie, 7, and Amy, 4. Look at this blouse, she told them. They looked. This was my favorite blouse. Do you see this stain? This is a chocolate stain. And they stared in wide-eyed wonder, knowing they were now in big trouble. 
The stain is never coming out, she told them. Not now, not forever. Do you kids understand how long forever is? That's how long you're going to stand here until you tell me which one of it, you, it was that left the chocolate candy in your pocket. Katie was the first to break. With tear-filled eyes, she looked at the blouse and she said, Andrew did it. <laughs> Andrew passionately denied it, glaring at his sister. Now there was silence for the longest time. Not one of them said a word. I knew they wouldn't because they could plainly see their mother was very upset. I knew they wouldn't because they knew if they did, they would be spending a good long time alone in timeout in their rooms. I knew they wouldn't because I was the one who left the candy in my pocket and I knew I wasn't saying anything. There would be a much safer time and place to confess, like in a sermon maybe, years down the road. The truth is that our lives are all stained by sin. That's what we thought about last week, remember? And it wasn't a particularly pleasant topic, was it, for all those that were here? Many of the stains that we have in our lives seem kind of small and insignificant, but others, they bleed through the whole fabric of our lives. They're the ones that we regret in those nights that we can't sleep. We lay in bed and we wish that somehow we could just go back and have those moments to live over and get it right this time. And many of them that are stains that we're not even aware of because we don't even know how dark our own hearts really are. But if our hearts were working right, we would regret them. We thought last week about how we consider ourselves to be quite a bit better than we actually are because we compare ourselves to people around us. 98% of people believe that they're better than average, morally speaking. Remember, 90% of us think we're better drivers than average, too. And I recommended to you a book. Anybody remember the title of the book? The Truth About Us, Brant Hansen. And by the way, one of you texted me last week and you said uh, that you had bought seven copies of The Truth About Us. And if I would promise not to reveal your identity, you would put them in the church library. Uh, so I'm not saying who it was. Only then to say it was not me. I did not buy them. And so this morning, there are seven copies. Five are here, two are coming. A couple of them are on the, the, the little table outside, and the rest are in the library, and you can check them out. I don't know why the person bought seven and not five or not ten, but seven is a perfect number. It's a biblical number. So we have seven, and I hope that you'll read it. And we also thought about the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And how the Pharisee thought of himself as a pretty good fellow because he compared himself to other people. But the tax collector knew he didn't measure up. He knew that in reality he was a dirty, rotten scumbag. So he stood afar off, remember? Because he couldn't, he sensed his utter unworthiness to even be there in the temple. 
He stood afar off and he begged God that the sacrificial offering burning on that altar might stand in his place. It wasn't so much mercy that he begged for, but he asked that the atonement sacrifice might count for him. A perfect substitute that would stand in his place because he knew he didn't pass muster. He didn't measure up. And one of the takeaways from last week's story was that we come to love the gospel only as we come to realize our great need of it. Just like that tax collector. We come to love the gospel. We come to know how much Jesus loves us when we come to terms with the truth about us. But there's more to it than just knowing this. There's more to knowing that the gospel is good and that God loves us and that he has lavished us with mercy. We must know that, but that's not all we must know. So the question is, how does knowing how good the gospel is and how much we are loved, how does that transform our lives? In other words, how do we experience the liberating goodness of God's forgiveness? And the answer is, in a word, confession. This is what we're going to think about this morning, and I hope that you will find it helpful. We'll begin with the verses that Linda read for us, and we'll finish with a very well-known promise from the New Testament. First, Psalm 32. And this is one of the six penitential psalms. Psalms that talk about sin and how we deal with it. They are coming clean psalms. The most famous penitential psalm, of course, is Psalm 51, written by David when the enormity of his wrongdoing finally dawned on him. His adultery with Bathsheba, the subsequent murder of her husband to cover up that deed. Well, Psalm 32 was also written by David. He had some experience with this stuff, didn't he? He writes here, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is kind of an old churchy word. Um, here's how the Message Bible puts it. How happy you must be. You get a fresh start. Your slate's wiped clean. Blessed, as Linda's Bible said, happy, it means living well, in other words. And notice that he uses two words here. He says, how happy are you when your transgressions are forgiven and your sins are covered. Transgressions and sins. The phrases are in parallel construction. It's kind of a repetition of ideas, but the words are more than synonyms. We're going to think about the second one first. That word sin means to miss the mark or to get off the path. When you're on a path, it means that you're going somewhere because paths go someplace. They lead from one place to another. And of course, if we're following Christ, we're on a path. We're headed to a destination. We are on our way to a better place, right? We might call it the kingdom of heaven. It's a place of beauty and honesty and faithfulness, a place where we can truly live well. But sin takes us off the path. And when we're not on the path, we're in the weeds and the undergrowth and the brush and pretty soon we might even be lost. We might even not know in which direction we're going. We're derailed. Sin derails. It keeps us from getting to our destination. 
In the Bible, sin often describes behavior, what we do or don't do, and it can be intentional or it can be unintentional, just a mistake. But either way, we're still off the path. But there's another word, and that's the word transgression. Transgression also means sin, but there's a twist. There's an amplification connected with this word. Transgression comes from the Hebrew word pesha, and that word means rebellion or to rebel. It means a blatant self-assertion and carries the idea of choosing to do that which is forbidden or choosing not to do that which is commanded. There is a mysterious darkness deep down inside human beings that tends to long for the, bit, for the forbidden, isn't there? Haven't you ever noticed that? A kind of attitude that says, nobody tells me how to live my life. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 7 when he mentions coveting. And he writes, you know, the law says, do not covet. But that law produced in me all kinds of covetous desires. The very prohibition of a thing awakens desire for it. There's something diabolical down inside us that revolts against being told no. So transgression is not only behavior, it is willful behavior that's connected to a fallenness deep down inside. And David says, if we want to have a happy life, if we want to live well, then these things have to be dealt with, both of them. They have to be forgiven and they have to be covered. And then he says the kind of the same thing in a little different way in verse 2. He says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. But here he adds an interesting uh, verse now that is not in parallel. He says, blessed is the man in whose spirit is no deceit. And again, here's how the message puts it. Count yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you and you're holding nothing back from him. In other words, living well means, first of all, that you're not in denial. You are honest and forthright about your sinfulness. You come to terms with the truth about you. But there's more, because he goes on to say, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Life wasn't good. Life was depressing and joy was gone. It was, it was oppression and it was relentless when I kept silent, he says, like I did with the chocolate candy in the dryer and like I do with so many other stains in my life. When I carry them with me, I become burdened down and joy evaporates. So it's not enough for me to know how bad I really am. It's not enough for me to even be humble about my life or to know how good the gospel really is. There's something more that I have to experience for it to become real to me so that I can truly live well and find the blessing that God intends for me to have. Here's what David says it is. It's confession. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then what happened? 
then you forgave the guilt of my sin, he says. So the operative link between knowing my sin and experiencing a cleansing is confession. The operative link between knowing how very good the gospel is and and experiencing the freedom of forgiveness is confession. Sometimes people wonder, well, I'm a Christian and God already knows, so why should I have to confess? But confession is not something that we do for God's sake. It's not for him. It's for us. We do it for our sake because it, it is part of the process of healing and changing. And when we do it well, a couple of things will happen. We'll be liberated from guilt and we will be maybe just a little less likely to repeat the same sinful behaviors in the same old way. Hmm. But I discovered something as I was thinking about confession this week and as I was reading about it and studying about it, I discovered that I don't believe that most of us do it well. Confession, that is. And I discovered that at least I don't do it well. I don't. Confession. I think about the prayers that I offer, even sometimes prayers that I hear being offered, and I realize how little confession there really is. I might say something like, Lord, please forgive my sin. I confess it to you. And then I'm off to the next thought. Sometimes confession isn't even mentioned at all. Think about some of the great prayers that you know in the Bible. Confession was front and center. Think about Daniel in chapter 9, praying for his people and yearning for their captivity in Babylon to come to an end. Fully half of that prayer, 10 verses, is confession. We have rebelled. We haven't listened to you. We haven't listened to the prophets you sent us. We've been unfaithful. We've turned away. What we are getting is exactly what we deserve for our bad behavior. On and on he goes, praying, confessing for his people. Ten verses. I mean, the prayers of Nehemiah, even the one of Solomon in Chronicles, same story. And yet nowadays, confession seems like it's kind of gone out of vogue among Christians. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because most of us have a low view of sin. We talked about that last week. We don't see sin for what it really is. We don't sense its awfulness or realize how destructive it is or how permanently it is indelibly staining our own hearts. And so we think, on the whole, we're really pretty good people. Or at least we're not very bad people. We're not really bad people little bad people, a little bit of bad people, but mostly good, mostly good, say. Or maybe we don't confess well because we think of it more like an accounting procedure, like sin was on the debit side of God's ledger, but now I've confessed it, so it's, it's, it's erased, it's gone. Maybe it's because we really don't understand what confession means. We think confession is admitting something that we did wrong and then maybe adding an apology at the end. It was me that left the candy in my pocket. I'm sorry. Confession is that, but it's a whole lot more. Confession not only acknowledges a specific behavior or thought, it also agrees with God or with the person who was hurt that the behavior was wrong. 
It also acknowledges the hurt and the destruction resulting from that behavior or thought. Confession takes full responsibility, offers no excuses, accepts as just any penalty incurred. Confession done well takes full responsibility. It's actually a very big deal. It is when we do it well. So the question is, how can we do it well? In the remaining few minutes, I'm going to share with you a practice of confession that can begin maybe to heal our souls. I've taken it from a book that has been on my shelf for over 20 years. It is one of the, I consider it one of my classic books. I, it's always there. Um, it's one of the best books I have ever read on the topic of spiritual disciplines for common people, for ordinary people. Confession is what is known as a spiritual discipline. In other words, it is a practice that helps us develop spiritual maturity and depth. Spiritual disciplines are like training that produces holiness. Because holiness doesn't just happen, you know. It doesn't just seep in all by itself. It's not just a, a stage of, of uh, a developmental stage that, that we naturally grow into. And because they are disciplines, they're not always fun. And there's not always time to do them. They're not always easy. They don't just happen. But, and, and you can't multitask them, but they are profitable for the spiritual life. As Paul writes in his letter to Timothy about reading Scripture, which is one of the spiritual disciplines, reading Scripture um, is profitable for training in righteousness, he says. There you have it. Now, you can read about spiritual disciplines, you know, by widely, in books written by widely respected authors, people like Dallas Willard, and he is a very, very thoughtful writer. He is very good. But sometimes, for people like me, it's hard for me to understand people like that. He is up there. The book I have is called The Life You've Always Wanted. It's like Dallas for Dummies. And from time to time, I pick it up and I reread a chapter on a particular discipline like the practice of servanthood or the practice of secrecy or the re reflection on scripture and prayer. And in the chapter on confession, the author lists six steps of effective confession. And I've taken those and I have modified them and I'm going to just walk with, with you through them, those six. And you can write them down if you want to, like on the front of your bulletin, because when you write stuff down, it's easier for you to remember it. But if you don't, I'm also going to give you a little card as we finish today. And these six steps will be on, on the card for you to take. And you can tape it on the mirror when, when you wash in the morning or brush your teeth in the evening or lay it on your nightstand or put it wherever you, you can get it when, when you have a, a, a moment to think. So here they are, the six steps to effective confession. The first one is preparation. Before I can confess properly, I must place myself under the care of the Holy Spirit and ask for help. Why? Because as far as sin is concerned, only the Holy Spirit can reveal to me really what's in my heart. I can't do it. The heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? Well, the Holy Spirit can know it. The Holy Spirit can. 
Jesus said that part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And the world includes me. I'm part of it. Okay, so the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. I invite the Holy Spirit to reveal what I'm blind to. In the book, and one reason why I like this book better than Dallas Willard's book is because there's lots of stories. And they help. We like stories. In the book, there's a story about Charles Steinmetz, who was a genius electrical engineer for General Electric back in the 1920s. And one day, after he retired, the other engineers were baffled by a breakdown in a particular complex machine, and they finally had to call in Steinmetz to come back to see if he could pinpoint the problem. He spent several minutes walking around the machines, and then he took out a piece of chalk from his pocket, and he marked an X on one particular part of one particular machine. And to their amazement, when the engineers took that portion of the machine apart, it turned out to be the precise location of the breakdown. A few days later, the engineers received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, which was an enormous sum in the 1920s. It was so high, they returned it to him with a request that he itemize it. And he did. Making one chalk mark, $1, knowing where to put it, $9,999. Confession begins by placing ourselves under the care of the expert, the Holy Spirit, asking him to put the mark on the right spot. And he will. And here's a wonderful text that you can use for, for the first step of the prayer, of the, the six effective steps, okay? It's actually uh, a prayer. It's only two verses, so it's short, it's sweet, it's already in a form that you can use it. And I have recommended this little prayer to many, many people over the years, and I have used it myself. Here it is. It's Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, Search me, God, and know my heart, because I don't know it. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me. Oh, yeah, baby, there are. There are some. And lead me in the way everlasting. We give God carte blanche permission to show us what we need to see. That's step one. Preparation to confess. Step two is a new self-awareness. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit makes the chalk mark. This means taking the time to reflect on our thoughts and our actions, our words and our deeds in the mirror of God's word. Now in years past, this kind of thing was simply taken for granted that Christians would do this all the time. And in years past, Christians would do this by thinking through various categories of sin and then thinking about how their lives measured up against that. Oftentimes, people used the Ten Commandments as a standard to measure by. This is what Jesus did with the rich young ruler who came to him in Luke 18, asking what good thing he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus goes through a partial list of the commandments, numbers 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. The man says, I'm good with those ever since I was a boy. So Jesus says, you still lack one thing. And then he talks to him about commandment number 10 in story form. And that made it hit home, didn't it? Because Luke says the man became very sad. 
Jesus was helping him measure his life against the standard of the Ten Commandments. And by the way, what should that rich young ruler have done at that point, do you think? Luke says he, he, he became sad and he walked away. Right response? Wrong response. What should he have done right then? He should have confessed right then. See? Yes, Lord, of course. I've had this problem for a long time. I'm just addicted to my stuff. I admit it. I know it's wrong. It's what makes me feel good about who I am. The right response would have been the response of the tax collector that we thought about last week. He beat his chest, remember? The fallen state of his sinful, sinful heart was so distressful that he beat his chest. And we talked about in that culture what it meant to beat chest. If you don't remember, get to tape. Then he begged that the atonement sacrifice might count for him. Okay, that's the response. Self-examination always has to be done in the light of God's word because only God's word provides a transcendental standard. In Psalm 32, David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you. I, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Okay? We live in an age where there aren't any, any moral standards. Absolutely, absolute standards. We decide what's right and wrong, don't we? And it's all over the map what that is. And maybe that's part of why everybody thinks they're better than everybody else. Everybody's using a different standard to judge by. Everybody's using a different ruler. But the standard isn't what everybody else thinks. The standard isn't what popular opinion says it is, which is always changing anyway. We got to have a straight edge. And the standard is what God thinks. There's a verse in Psalm 51 that many people have a hard time with. Psalm 51, of course, is about David confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, which had been very, that had had very hurtful consequences to a lot of people involved. Don't you think that it would have had, you know? But in verse 4, he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. What's going on here? What about Uriah? What about Uriah's family? What about all the collateral damage and the trail of wrecked lives in the wake of that behavior? How can he say, God, against you only have I sinned? Well, it's because it was God's standard that he had violated. It was God's design of how the universe operates that was violated. Of course people are hurt. People are always hurt. But sexual purity and murdering your friends is not a standard that human beings came up with. We didn't think up those things on our own. We didn't say, well, the universe will probably run better if we make a rule against sleeping with our friends' wives. No. It was God's idea. So when I measure my life against God's word, I began to develop a new self-awareness. I began to see that, whoa, whoa, I guess I'm not near as good as I thought I was, after all. I've been doing some work in my house. I'm framing in a fireplace and bookcases. I've got the sheetrock work mostly finished. And in the ambient light in the room, most of it looks pretty good. But I've got a pair of 500-watt halogen work lights, and I brought them in and shined them on the wall, and guess what happened? 
There are flaws everywhere. There are gouges and scratches and pits and wavy places. Under those bright lights, what looked pretty good suddenly appears as it really is. Not so good. And that's what happens when we compare our lives to God's word. Another text that you can use for this is Proverbs 6.19. It's also short and sweet, but it is hard-hitting. Here it is. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I mean, pride, deceit, violence, conspiracy, gossip. How do my actions today and the thoughts of today measure up against this standard? The Alcoholics Anonymous people call this step four, taking a fearless moral inventory of my life. What this does is to bring to view specifically where I have fallen short so that I can take specific responsibility for where I have fallen short. Confession is not an excuse. I didn't mean to yell at you. I was just having a bad day. To confess means I own the responsibility. It's not because I had bad parents. It's not because I missed a light night's sleep. It's not because I feel crummy today and I'm sick. Confession means that somewhere along the line, I made a choice that went against the principles by which the universe operates. I admit that I made that choice and I agree that it was wrong. And for that, I need step six, uh, step three, which is a new perception. In other words, I want to see my sin for what it really is. You know, God didn't give us the Ten Commandments just for busy work. He didn't just think, you know, can I come, what can I come up with to restrict these people from having a full life? They aren't just arbitrary. You think about lying, for instance. He mentions that twice in the list of the things that he detests. Did you catch that? Um, seven things, and two of them in the list are, are deceit, lying. And we are awash in lies today, are we not? What happens when I lie to somebody? Well, the relationship between us is degraded because I'm treating another human being as if he or she were an object something that can be manipulated for my benefit. Which means that when I lie to somebody, I dehumanize them, and I dehumanize myself. When I lie to somebody, truth is eroded. Even if that person never finds out I lied, truth is eroded because now I'm, I'm less likely to trust other people because I know they might lie to me. And if the other person does find out, then he or she is less likely to trust other people. And as trust erodes, the very fabric of relationships begins to unravel. And that leads to a breakdown of the whole social framework. And we're seeing that in our country, all around us today. So when I go against the commandments, I'm going against the very grain of the universe, how things are designed to work. Not to mention the fact that it eventually leads to a very bad ending, doesn't it? I mean, sin is not just getting off the path. Sin is heading to a whole other destination, and it's not a good destination. In fact, it's a very, very bad destination. The wages of sin is what? 
It's death. Yeah, that's bad news. Last week we sang the song, Cover With His Life. One of the verses goes like this. Deep are the wounds transgression has made. Red are the stains. My soul is afraid. And well we should be because sin always kills without exception, without fail. In one of the sermons Jesus preached, he said, you know, before you try to take the speck out of your own eye, get the beam out of uh, out of your brothers, I get the beam out of your own eye first, he says. And one thing I think he means is that I need a new perception of what sin really is. I must begin to see it through the eyes of the one whom I sinned against. I need to begin to see it through the eyes of God. And then I can say, oh, God, that was really bad. That was hurtful. I have not been holding up the banner of goodness and righteousness. I can't even love right. Please, please help me. And that leads to step four, which is a new feeling. True confession is not just a ledger entry. It's not just an exchange of information with I'm sorry tacked on at the end. It also involves entering into the pain of the person that I have hurt. So the question becomes, how would I feel if someone had said to me or about me what I have just said about this person? How would it feel? to know that I had been lied to. Some of you remember, may remember about a year ago in a message on lying, I shared with you my shameful experience of lying to a police officer. Does anybody remember that story? Not many of you, good, that's good. So I'm not gonna retell it in detail. No need for double confession, is there? And don't go looking for it on the podcast either because I've, I've taken that down, it's gone. But the long sordid story made short is that I was pulled over for a traffic violation and I lied to the officer about having my seatbelt on when in reality it had not been on. And over the next few days, an overwhelming feeling of disappointment just drove me to go and find that police officer and confess and apologize. And part of what drove me to do that was the feeling of damage it was doing to the reputation of Christianity in the eyes of someone who probably was not a Christian and who would think, wow, so that's what a Christian is, huh? And how it must feel to be that policeman on the receiving end over and over again of dishonest citizens lying about their, dis about their misbehavior. How would that feel? And I thought about how painful it would be and how much cynicism that would produce, and it just made me very sad. Sometimes when I've said a harsh word to my wife, it's usually more than a harsh word, several maybe, she will ask for an appointment to sit down and talk with me. And when we do, she will describe the hurt she has experienced because of something I said with hardly a thought about the emotional consequences. Hardly a thought. She will describe how what I said crushed her spirit. Mm. And then I began to feel it, you see. The book of James says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now listen to this. He says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is a, is a real straight shooter. He doesn't mince words. And these feeling words he lists here are pretty strong words. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your joy to gloom. In other words, I think he's, he's getting at, get a feeling for the pain that your sin is causing. 
And of course, the specific sin he speaks of in this instance is fights within the congregation of believers. But it's a principle that when I begin to feel the pain it causes, I sense a growing desire not to do those things again. Because confession, I mean, yeah. Step five, a new promise. Confession is not only naming what I have done in the past, it involves my intentions for the future as well. It becomes a kind of promise. And God, as God does his work in me through the process of confession, I make a vow, I make a resolution that with his help, I will change. I will not just be locked in this endless pattern of repetition. And here we come now to that beautiful and well-known New Testament promise, 1 John 1.9. John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, he begins to remove the stain. He begins to change my heart. This is what happened to that other tax collector, the short one, named Zacchaeus. He made an incredible vow. He said, I will repay anyone I have cheated four times over. He said, I will give half of my goods to the poor. Now sometimes, most times, I'm afraid to make such a radical promise. We are, aren't we? But the point is, if we learn to confess well, we can't help but to be moved to abhor the sin and to be determined to to be involved with it no more. I don't want any more to do with that. We begin to hate it more and more. And one writer says it this way. He says, the level of our promise helps us to know whether we are actually repenting or just attempting damage control. Is our desire to set things right or merely to minimize painful consequences? So finally, we come to the summit now. This is step six. It's healing grace. This is where the goodness of the gospel liberates me to live a life free from guilt, free from regret. Because confession is not only a spiritual discipline, it's also an act of grace. It is a medium of the gospel. It's how the gospel works to us. How does it work? Look at 1 John 1, 9 again. It says, if we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful, which means he will always do it. He will never, ever turn away from us when we confess. And he is just. Notice it doesn't say that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. It doesn't say that. It says that he is just. Why does it say that? Because there is someone else who has already stepped in and taken the consequences of our sin, who has borne the responsibility of our sin. Jesus had a very acute sense of the dirtiness and the sinfulness of sin, more than we will ever know. He felt its enormity. Jesus knew its absolute destructive power and what it would cost to step in and take the place of those contaminated by it. Jesus understood the debt I owe would cost him his very life. And yet he went to the cross and he made expiation for sins, Paul says. He made reparations. He provided an atonement. The debt I owe because of the destruction I have caused, that debt has already been paid. And a double payment 
would not be just. And then he cleanses me from the unrighteousness it causes, the sinfulness, the fallenness. In other words, he gets the stain out. He gets the stain out. And that's what we're longing for, right? And so we truly experience the freedom of living in the goodness of the gospel. We not only know how good the gospel is, we can experience the freedom of living in forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Count yourself lucky. How happy you must be to get a clean slate. That's what it says. And here's the, here's the specific Bible text now for step six. It's 1 John 3, 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know he is greater than our hearts and he knows how much? He knows everything. God knows our hearts and he is faithful to get the stain out because he loves us. It's his act of grace. And I'll end with a story from the chapter on confession in the book, The Life You've Always Wanted. It's a, it's a scene from an, an old movie, and some of you may have seen it. It's called The Mission with Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro play, plays the role of Mendoza. It's a he's a character so vile, so selfish, and so brutal that there seems to be no hope for him. And when he decides to repent, he is given an act of penance to do. He's got to carry around this heavy burden tied to his body wherever he goes, okay? It's roped on there. He's just got to carry it with him. But through this ordeal, he begins to see his life a little differently. And he discovers that everything he has built his life on and around has really been a burden, not only to him, but especially to everybody that he has hurt along the way. Because of the burden he's must, he must carry, he comes to see his own helplessness and his own dependence. One day, on a desperate climb up a mountain, Mendoza realizes he's not going to make it, and he's also endangering the lives of those who are climbing with him. Suddenly, one of the tribesmen takes out a knife, and Mendoza thinks he is about to be killed, but instead the knife slashes the rope that has bound him to his burden. And he realizes now he's free and he will live. The burden has done its work. The giving of the burden was an, was an act of grace. It caused pain and hardship, but it was grace nonetheless. But the release from the burden was an even greater act of grace. And so it is with confession. That's what it is. As you leave today, the deacons are going to hand you a little card with the six steps of effective confession on that. I hope you might, that it, that it might help you on your journey along the path that we're on to our destination, okay? So we're gonna sing a song now. It's, part of the song is very familiar and part of it might not be so familiar, but uh, stand with us as we sing Just As I Am.